one of the things that we think about often in terms of the religion of the Jews, Judaism is the temple. And if you go to Jerusalem and see where the temple used to sit, the temple has been destroyed, but there are those stones from the temple from when it was built. And there are these stones, and some of the massive stones at the bottom are maybe 20 feet long and 12 feet high, probably weigh close to 70 tons. This engineering genius of this rebuilding of the temple. And so when I say rebuilding, there was a temple built by King Solomon, and that was destroyed in this conquest. And then a man named Herod came along, and he was ruling over this region of Israel. And he wasn't getting along real well with the Jews, and so kind of as a public relations campaign, he said, I'll rebuild the temple. And so he started this building project. Now, how many of you have ever done building or remodeling projects at home? How many of them have taken a little bit longer than you expect? How many took 40 or 50 years to get your remodeling project done? This was what the temple remodeling project did. It was this long and lengthy project, but the place is huge. And so you can imagine one single stone from the foundation being 20 feet long, and there were just stone after stone in this huge wall. If you see pictures of modern-day Jerusalem, and you see the Jews gathered at what's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, and they're standing there. That's kind of the foundation structure of the temple. And so that gives you an idea as you see these people standing in front of these stones and placing, placing their prayers into these rocks, a sense of how grand this temple is. And the temple was more than just an incredible architectural structure. The temple was the center of Jewish life. For the people of God, this was the presence of God on earth. And so I like to think of it as the intersection between earth and heaven, between human space and God's space. Sometimes we think of heaven as just this distant place and there's floating around in clouds and pearly gates and streets of gold. But the way the Bible talks about heaven is more in terms of God's space, where God lives. And so there's this intersection between earth and heaven, between human space and God's space. And that place for the ancient Jews was the temple. When you went to the temple, this was the place where you are closest to God, where you experience God's presence. And so even in the stories of the Old Testament, when it talks about the tabernacle, this tent that they took with them, and when they built the temple, they would say, God lives here, he dwells here. Now they had a sense absolutely that God was everywhere, but there was also the sense that this is the place where God lives. And so the temple represented the presence of God. It was the place where God was. And so as we're reading in John, we keep that in mind, and it says that it was the time of the Passover, and the Passover was this huge festival for the Jews, this festival where they remembered God bringing in their, his people out of slavery, and they celebrated this, and so there was this huge influx of people, all these people traveling to Jerusalem to be in God's presence and to remember this incredible act that God has done. And so we're told in John's Gospel that it was time for the Jewish, Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem. And it says in the temple courts. So the temple is this huge mountain. There's these various courts at the center, the Holy of Holies, this place where they would worship. And then there was the place for the sacrifices. And then outside there were courts. So there were these kind of rings, these rings. And so the closer you got to the center, the closer you got to the presence of God. But the courts where, where the people would go out, we're not sure if this was the court of maybe the Jewish men or the women or the Gentiles. But in the courts, it says he found people and they were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and they're exchanging money, which would have been a typical thing because one of the reasons people came to the temple was to offer sacrifices. 
And when you offered a sacrifice, you wanted to offer something that was pure and clean. You wanted a lamb that was unblemished. You wanted a, a cow that wasn't injured. So now imagine if you live 50, 60, 70 miles away from Jerusalem, and you have to make a trip, and you have to bring your sheep along, there's all kinds of chances as you're bringing your sheep to Jerusalem that it falls in a hole, that it trips and falls. And then you get to Jerusalem and you say, here's my sacrifice. And the priest looks and says, well, but look, it's got a limp leg here and it's torn up here and it's got all this tear on its wool here. And so they would provide as a service to those traveling. There were sheep and there were goats. There were all these animals that you could buy. So you didn't have to try and bring your animal with you. You would come to the courts and you would sacrifice one of their animals, which were unblemished and kept. And when you came with your money, like we think of here in the United States, we just we have dollar bills, and that's all we have. Well, in ancient days, there were all kinds of different currencies and coins. And so when you're coming to the temple courts, oftentimes you would be maybe carrying Roman coins. And on a Roman coin, there was a picture of the emperor. And so if you are coming to the temple to say, I want to offer my, here's my offering for God. Well, do you really want to give an offering to God that's got a big old picture of Caesar that says on the backside, Caesar is Lord? No. And so they had money exchangers. And so you would come in and you would take the Roman coins, you would exchange it for the coins that were appropriate for the temple. So the scene starts and it seems kind of normal. And everything is going okay. And Jesus sees this. But then we see it maybe a different Jesus than we're used to. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins, the money changers, and overturned the tables. So oftentimes this scene is used as this picture of like, oh, well, Jesus got angry. Well, I would challenge you to say it never actually says here Jesus got angry. It says that he did something. And also I hear sometimes people saying this is justification for lashing out at people like, oh, you know, this wasn't going bad, so I'm going to go flipping some tables. You know, this isn't right, so I'm going to pull a Jesus on him and get my whip out and flip the tables. I would encourage you to read the rest of the story of Jesus. Here's one particular incident, and maybe it's not what we think it is. Because we pay attention to what he says. He doesn't say, like, I'm really mad about this. But he says, to those who sold doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And so those, the kind of language we want to start paying attention to, what's he talking about? He's saying, you've taken my father's house. So one, Jesus is doing what? He's claiming a unique relationship with God. He's speaking about God because he's speaking about the temple. And he's saying, you've taken it from this place where God dwells to a place where goods are exchanged. And so this idea of about it's a house versus a market. And so I wonder if maybe what's going on is Jesus isn't so much concerned with corruption here, but he's concerned with purpose. He's saying, what's the purpose of this place? When Solomon built the temple hundreds of years before, he was saying he built a place for God to live, a house to live in. And so when Jesus describes a house, he says it's a place for God to live versus a market. And we know the difference between that. We have our homes, and our homes have one purpose, and then we go to Meyer, to Ace, or to Walmart, wherever, and those are stores. They have a different purpose. 
And so Jesus is saying, this place right here has a different purpose, and the purpose is a place for God to live. And we also see what Jesus is doing. So if Jesus comes in, and you've traveled a distance, and you're getting ready to do these sacrifices, and Jesus drives out all the animals, he overturns the money changers, things. he says, take the doves out of here, but you're a visitor to Jerusalem, and you come into the temple courts, and there aren't any animals to buy, and there aren't any money changers. What's the result? You can't do a sacrifice, can you? In other words, what Jesus is saying in part is, it's time for the system to end. It's time for this particular system, this way of worshiping to end. He's saying this is a place to encounter God. It's not a marketplace. And so Jesus is setting up this change in the way things have been doing. And what's interesting is when it talked about it, it says his disciples remembered, this is uh, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, and this is from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. And again, we hear that language of your house, God's house. And so zeal for your house will consume me. And this isn't the sense of, I'm so excited about like, we can be consumed by things sometimes, can't we? It's like, oh, I was consumed by, by the story of this book that I did, it just kind of took over. But if we read the psalm, what it's really talking about is that that zeal resulted in the destruction of the person. It consumed him. And so here the disciples are saying that he was so passionate about the temple that that passion for God's house ended up with Jesus dying. It consumed him. So there's the setup. So we've got this temple. Jesus comes in, takes the cords, drives the people and the animals out of the thing. And just a note there, where it goes back to, it says, it says he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple cords, both sheep and cattle. He's not whipping the people. He's doing what? He's driving the animals out. And there's this interesting thing then, the Jews respond to him in verse 18. What sign can you show to us to prove that you have the authority to do all this? Which is an interesting kind of question. They don't ask, well, why are you doing this? They're just saying, what's your authority? What, who get, what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus, as Jesus is often wont to do, doesn't really give an answer. And so this might be a lesson for us sometimes is some of us have questions for Jesus, don't we? We wonder. And what we notice is most of the times that we have recorded in our Bible, when people ask Jesus a question, he doesn't really give them an answer. So if you ever ask Jesus a question and you don't get an answer, you're not alone. This is just what Jesus does. And what does he do? He says, what sign, what authority do he say? Then he says, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. So, now remember, we're standing on the Jewish temple, this massive, several football ball fields-sized temple with these huge and massive stones that has been an ongoing construction part project for close to 50 years. And Jesus says, I'll tear it down and I'll build it back in three days. So if you're sitting there and you hear Jesus say that, 
what's going to be your response? You're going to be a little bit confused, aren't you? And that's exactly what they said. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days? But what's interesting here is what do these Jews, the Jewish people do here? We have to be careful as we're reading these things, and in the history of Bible interpretation, and the history of the church, oftentimes passages like this have led to anti-Semitism, to hatred of the Jewish people, and to, to looking down at the Jews. And we have to be very careful not to do that, to take these things to do that. So that's just a little side note. So we come back to this, and so we have, they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days. And so maybe the question is, when we get one of those odd responses from Jesus, because sometimes Jesus tells us things or responds to things, and so sometimes we don't get an answer from Jesus. Sometimes we do get an answer from Jesus, but it's a little confusing. It's a little perplexing. Here, as we read what the, the people do is, they don't, they just kind of like, they kind of jump back at him. Like, how in the hell in the world can you do that? Whereas maybe the better response would be to ask a question. To say, well, what do you mean by that? So I think of sometimes I'm reading the Bible and it says, Jesus says, I want you to forgive 70 times 7. And the temptation that comes up inside of me is to say, you don't understand. For 46 years this person's been picking on me. You expect me to just forgive them that many times? Whereas opposed to say maybe how we should respond, which we don't see here, is to say, okay, Jesus, how does that work? How do I do that? So maybe what would have happened if instead of saying, you can't do that, Jesus, you can't tear this place down and build it back up in three days, what would it have been like instead if they'd simply said, I don't understand, what are you talking about? Can you explain that to me? Because oftentimes, as we read through the Bible, when people stop and ask those kind of questions, Jesus tends to answer them. But most of the time, we don't want the answers. We, we want to just be given the answers. We don't want to have to work for them a little bit. But so it's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it again in three days. But John is kind enough to explain to us, and he says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. And so now what we realize is Jesus is talking on two different levels. And as we're, we're doing this study of the Gospel of John, we're going to find this is something that comes up again and again and again in the Gospel of John. Where Jesus is talking about one thing and people think he's talking about something else. And maybe you've had this experience in your own life. Where you're talking about something and people think you are talking about something completely different. And Jesus often has this where he's referencing something. They're sitting there, what are they looking at? They're looking at this big temple. And so if you were sitting there and Jesus said, I'm going to tear down this temple, what would be the first inclination? What would be the reasonable thing to think he's talking about? The temple, right? But he's not talking about that temple. He's talking about the temple was his body. And so this theme runs through the book of John. It's Jesus as the temple. So we jump back a few minutes in time here where I was talking about the temple. What was the purpose of the temple? 
The temple was the representation of God's presence on earth. It was the place you went to worship. It was the place where you experienced the presence of God. So when Jesus says his body is his temple, he's saying that's where the presence of God is. That it's no longer confined. And so Jesus, does Jesus just stay in Jerusalem in one little place where everybody has to come and gather? No, he walks around. He gathers. In fact, in a couple weeks, we're going to be doing a story where Jesus encounters a woman at a well. And he talks about not worshiping on this mountain or that mountain, but worshiping in spirit and truth. In other words, the presence of God isn't fixed in one place. It travels. It goes different places. That it's not limited to one single place. That God dwells in Jesus. And so we keep that in mind as we're going through this story that Jesus, in some sense, is less concerned with maybe we want to get into the, well, what were they doing in the temple and why were they selling these things? But what Jesus is getting to in the sense of the story is he wants people to understand that the old way of doing things is no longer relevant. That the temple is no longer the place to find the presence of God. The presence of God is now centered in Jesus. And wherever Jesus goes is the presence of God. And if we want to go encounter the presence of Jesus, we no longer go to the physical temple, but we go instead to Jesus and to who he is. And so as we think now about ourselves, because most of us, we've grown up around the church, we don't think of Jesus you know, being in one particular place. I mean, sometimes we have a sense when we come to church that it is a little bit different. There's a sense of holiness in another place. But we don't have in our imagination that this is God's presence, that if I were to go right here, I can't get too close to this spot, that I would have to take my shoes off because this is the presence of God. But we have this sense where God is everywhere. But I want us to think about it in a different way. Back to that initial line that Jesus said, where he says, when he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. About how do we see the temple? And so, one, we have the temple of God is described in the New Testament as, as Jesus, but later on in the New Testament, the temple of God is the people of God. And so they had come to see the temple, this place as this marketplace, and they had turned it into something different. And so, my question is how do we treat the people of God or the church? Are we tempted sometimes to turn the church into a market? And you might be thinking, well, no, I don't, you know, we're not selling sheep and cattle and doves and they're not, we're not doing money changing. But do we sometimes turn the church, and by the church I don't mean the building, I mean the people, simply into a market? And what's the purpose of a market? You buy, and you sell, and you trade, and you look for things. And so sometimes in church, sometimes in the church, we can be tempted to treat it as a market. I remember when I was serving overseas in Korea. I had a unit commander, and he talked about going, he was the battalion commander, and he talked about going to chapel on Sunday. And I was having a conversation with him about it, and I was thinking about, well, what is it you're looking for, and trying to find out more what it was. But ultimately, his response to me was, he went to chapel because it was important for him to be seen there. 
So he wasn't going to encounter God. He wasn't going to hear from God. He instead, what? He saw the church, the chapel, as a marketplace. Or what was he doing? He wasn't buying and selling cattle and sheep. He was buying and selling an image. He was buying and selling his reputation. Maybe you've encountered that in church. Maybe you've done that yourselves in church. Where it's not so much about encountering God, but maybe it's about making sure that people know I'm here. Making sure I'm seen. That maybe you or someone you know has made sure that they sit in the right pew. Because if you sit in the way back pew, nobody can see you back there. If you sneak in the back door and sneak out, nobody knows you're here. But maybe you choose a pew, and I'm not picking on you guys up here. But <laughs> I know it feels like it, but I'm not. <laughs> maybe you choose a pew because you want to make sure you're seen. Or maybe you want to teach a particular class or serve in a particular ministry because you know you'll be seen. And what you're trading in is not sheep and cattle and goats, but what you're trading in is reputation and people's opinion of you. Or maybe you're looking for a network. You signed up for the latest multi-level marketing scheme. And you've decided that you've got to find a way to sell. Fact here. One of the leading places where multi-level marketing takes place is in the church. Why? Because there's all these connections and people. And if you're in a small group with somebody and they come to you and they say, I've got this opportunity. This opportunity, you hardly have to do anything and you'll make all kinds of money. And so what happens, the church has now been turned into a marketplace, a place to exchange and to get ideas. So sometimes we don't think of it that way. We think, oh, we're past those days. We don't turn our church into a market. I go out in the narthex here. I don't see any sheep or coat or cattle. There's no money changers in there. But we ask ourselves, how do we treat the people within the congregation? Do we see them as a marketplace? Are they somebody, someone, something, something simply where we can get and gain from? where we can sell our ideas, where we can buy influence, where we can get friends, where we can get all these things from us? Or do we see it, the church, as a place to encounter the presence of God? And so when Jesus is talking here about the temple and saying, this is, don't turn my father's house into a marketplace, it's not simply something that took place 2,000 years ago when it was easier to see what the marketplace looked like. The marketplace has just changed what it looks like today. Or we can consider how we treat Jesus. Do we come to Jesus simply for what we can get from Jesus? Do we think, oh, you know, if I bring my sacrifice, then I'm going to get this. Have we turned Jesus into a marketplace where we buy and sell, where Jesus is seen as a vendor of religious goods and services, a vendor? And so we come and we say, oh, Jesus, if I give you this, then you'll give me that. She said, I don't know, but Jesus, I'll teach that Sunday school class, but you've got to take care of this for me here. I know, Jesus, I'm going to make this offering today. It's a little more than I think I would, but Jesus, God, you're going to give me something for it. And so we begin to treat Jesus sometimes as that same sort of thing. We turn the presence of God, we turn his, our father, his Father's house, the place where he dwells, into a marketplace. There's an interesting little thing that pops up a couple times in the story, I don't know if you caught that, where it said, and the disciples remembered. 
They remembered that the saying from the psalm that zeal for my house would consume me. And then later on it says they remembered after he was raised from the dead, they recalled what he had said. And so sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question, have we forgotten? And we need to be reminded. And so maybe something you might do this week is to say, God, what do you need to remind me? What is it that I've forgotten? Because as we journey with Jesus and we talk here at Fruitland Covenant Church, we have um, this covenant for a Christian community about living together. And it says, and it talks about we're all at different places in our walk with Jesus. And the idea behind that, which is left unsaid, is that we're on a journey. That when we encounter Jesus, our life with Jesus doesn't become static. So if you met Jesus on May 23rd, 1987, Jesus doesn't leave you on May 23rd, 1987. He takes you on a journey. And over that journey, there are changes inside of you as God takes and shapes and maintains or transforms you into who he wants you to be. But sometimes along the journey, we forget things. And we need to be reminded of them. And we'll come to it in many weeks from now, but Jesus, near the end of his ministry, as he's talking to his disciples, he talks about sending the Holy Spirit. Do you know what one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus talks about? To help them remember. To remind them of the things that he had done. And so that's an encouragement for us is, one is, we noticed the disciples didn't get it all right away. That as these things were going on, as Jesus is driving out the money changers and he's talking about the temple, it's not as if they said, oh, I know what he's talking about. I got it. And sometimes it's the same way with us. Sometimes Jesus says things to us. And when I say that, when Jesus says things to us, it comes in different ways for different people. I know some people will at times literally hear an audible voice inside their head of God speaking to them. Sometimes it comes more as just kind of this nudge, this kind of feeling of there's something I should do. Or maybe there's something I shouldn't do that I'm getting ready to do. It also comes through God's written word, but God speaks in many different ways to different people. And so when I say remembering or remembering what God has said, it may be just simply recalling a piece of scripture. It may be recalling a sermon you've heard or a song that you've heard. It may be recalling just the sense it may be remembering who you know Jesus to be. And so maybe for some of us is we've forgotten certain things and we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that Jesus is the presence of God. We need to be reminded that the people of God are the temple of God, that they're the presence of God. They're not simply a marketplace. But also the maybe final lesson, well, there's not the final lesson, the last lesson that I'll share for today that we might take from this story is just that reminder that Jesus is the living embodiment. He is the presence of God. That if you're seeking and wondering who God is and what God is like, then you seek Jesus. You say, I want to experience the presence of God. I want to go into God. Then you find it in Jesus. That it might be tempting to say, well, 
if I go to this conference, if I go to this workshop, if I read this book, if I listen to this song, then I will come into the presence of God and I will say this to you, that the only place to find the presence of God is in Jesus. And that Jesus is the one who fully reveals it, who God is and what God is like. Because sometimes we get a little confused about what God is like. And so we go again and we experience Jesus so this story from 2,000 years ago that seems kind of strange at first, of Jesus with a whip, of animals being driven out, tables being overturned, is about this central truth, that the presence of God is found in Jesus, that Jesus is the new temple, the place where the presence of God dwells, which means God dwells where Jesus goes, and Jesus goes with us. So we don't have to go to a particular place. We don't have to go to any one place to find the presence of God. We can find it wherever Jesus is. And Jesus has promised us that he's everywhere and that he goes with us. So may you experience the presence of God this week. May you know his presence with you. May you know the sense of the temple who is Jesus. Amen.